years, God has been very faithful with the ups and the downs and the strange people that are, what were you doing up here? I have to know now. The music sta- oh, all right. Is there something? Oh, I got it. All right. Somebody left it. Oh, yeah, Dom, you just got fired from your 150th anniversary. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can't get fired from that job. All right. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18, and you can also stick a finger in Genesis chapter 21. A few pages later, we will have the verses up on the screen, but I always encourage you to open up uh, your Bible and follow along. We're continuing our series called The Difficult Journey of Faith, which is a look at the life of Abraham and what his life teaches us about what it looks like to live with faith and to live without faith. So that we may be people who live with and by faith, because as we read in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please who? Impossible to please God. Now today we're going to talk about a topic I have never talked about in all my 20 years of being a pastor. We're going to talk about laughter. We're going to talk about laughter. We're going to talk about this universal human behavior that transcends culture uh, and time And land, something we all have in common, the ability to laugh. Now, one study showed that the average adult laughs in one form or another 17 times a day. So for those of you who laughed at my space joke, you got 16 more times to go today. 15. That means if this is correct, that in your life, you will laugh half a million times. And positive laughing has so many uh, emotional and physical and relational benefits. It is good to laugh. So remember the next time I make a bad joke and you do not laugh, you are only hurting yourself. (laughs) 14 times. But notice I said positive laughing. Because there are negative forms of laughter. For example, laughter can be negative when we are making fun of each other or being sarcastic with one another. But that's not the kind of negative laughing I want to focus on today. I want to talk about the kind of laughing we do that reveals the pain and the insecurities and the doubt that we have inside of us. And we do it without realizing it. Have you ever thought about how our our laughter and our chuckles, they're covering up deep pains and hurts inside of us? the jokes that we make about ourselves, that they say so much more about our hurt than we realize. The deprecating comments, little shots at ourselves that we use to cover up and hide our pain, our insecurity, our doubt, They are so common in all of our lives. Like I said, we do it without even paying attention. And if nothing else, I pray this message will get you to check yourself, the way that you talk about yourself, the way that you laugh about yourself. And if if you are someone who laughs this way, and I guarantee you that we all do it at one time or another, I believe God has a special message for you today. He's gonna teach you how he changes the way that you laugh the way that you joke, the way that you smile. We're going to learn this by following another step in the life of Abraham in chapter 18. 
Now, if you've been here for all of these weeks and you haven't, I'm gonna, I'll back you up for a little bit is we have Abraham and Sarah who have been barren. They can't have kids. And yet over three different times, God has come to Abraham and he said, look, you're going to have a kid. Even though you're old, you're going to have a kid. In fact, you're going to have so many offspring, you can't even count them. And that your offspring will be a blessing to all of the world, which we now know was a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. The thing is that every time God made this promise, he made it to Abraham. And today what we're going to see for the very first time is we're going to see God come directly to Abraham's wife, Sarah. And these interactions is what going to teach us about how God changes our laughter. So I'm going to take us through the text and then we'll walk through it to see what God has to say to us this morning. Starting in chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if, you, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Verse 6, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sias of fine flour, which is about 18 liters. Knead it, make some cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd. He took a calf that was tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord. At the appointed time, I shall return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now we're going to jump over to Genesis 21. See God fulfill his promises. Genesis 21, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. So let's start off by figuring out and asking the question, who are these three visitors that just show up out of nowhere? Well, next week, as we get into the back half of Genesis 18, we'll see that two of them were angels. And the third is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We talked about this in Colossians 1. We talked about this in John 1, that Jesus Christ did not just suddenly show up in a manger as a baby. He has been around since before the beginning of time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. King Jesus has been around, involved in the affairs of all of creation before the beginning of time. I'd love to spend more time studying on this, but we don't have the time for it today. But in this instance, as he comes, he's here to deliver a message. He says, this time next year, Sarah is going to give birth to a child. That's his message. Now let's look at how Sarah replies to this. Genesis 18, 12, it says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now this is a very cynical, cynical laugh if you read the Hebrew. The term worn out, it's a word that means useless. That means good for nothing. It's a very negative word. It's a very self-hating word. And the word for pleasure is not what you might think either. The normal reader reads this and thinks like, after I'm this old, well, I now have the pleasure of having a child. That's not what the word means. The Hebrew word here is a word that means sexual pleasure. She's saying, look, I'm utterly worn out. We're not even physically intimate anymore. And now I'm going to have a son? This is a joke to her because of how poorly and impossible she views her situation. And like I said earlier at the beginning, we all do this. Sometimes we chuckle, sometimes we laugh, uh, sometimes we make a joke as a response to how we view ourselves and view the things going on. It's, we do it almost as like a coping mechanism to deal with the feelings of inadequacy or our low self-esteem. As we feel those, put, those, those pains rise up in us, we can make a joke and, and chuckle, and so it pushes it away. It, it allows us not to have to experience and feel that deep pain. And it gives us a sense of, of control over those insecurities. So let me put them away with a joke, with a chuckle, with a side comment. I, mean, I, I, I wondered about myself and I wondered about you, about how often do we make these little jokes out of our pain and our hurt and our insecurity? We don't even realize that we're doing it. That we're recognizing and trying to cope with this pain and this doubt that we have. 
And if you think about it, you see other people in your lives do it. You hear them make the joke, and you notice there's something more behind that. You can see it. The problem is when we do this, or maybe the reason that we do this is that our focus is all about on us and what we see in ourselves or what we don't see in ourselves. I mean, her whole comment about the Lord comes and says, I'm going to do this, and her whole response is, but I am this and I am this and I am this. Her focus is not on God. It's on herself. And God calls her out on it gently. In verse 13, he says, why did Sarah laugh like that? Why is her laughter so bitter, bitter and cynical and skeptical? And then he gives a response. He redirects her. And in verse 14, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's almost like, Sarah, you're thinking all about yourself and what you can do. God's not even a part of your equation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, I want you once again to pick up something that the English does not pick up very well. The Hebrew word for hard is literally the word wonder. The word wonder, to wonder. It's a word that you see over and over again in the Psalms, like Psalms 105, 1 through 2. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make his deeds know among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. In other words, this is how he's going to change Sarah's perspective. This is ultimately how he's going to change the way that she laughs. He's going to bring wonder into her life. And let me tell you what I'm talking about here because we don't use the word wonder a lot unless we're talking about Wonder Woman, right, in our comic books. Wonder can be defined as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, and inexplicable. Okay, what does wonder look like? I think wonder looks like, uh, it looks like a child. Have you ever looked at how young children live their lives? Not how they behave, but how they live their lives. They, they love life. And they're usually always having a good time. They're excited about the littlest things. They're never walking around like Ella, my two-year-old. She doesn't walk around going, life stinks. I have no meaning. Right? Why? Because their lives are filled with wonder. Right? They are impressed uh, by the things that we, we take for granted. You see, the more wonder that you have in your life, the more your life is meaningful. The more your life has hope and has joy. Like It, it takes nothing for a kid to get filled with wonder. I, I remember the first time that we took, I think Ella, I think it was to the zoo. And she goes, literally, she goes, whoa. And she goes, what is this? Like she's, and if you know how adorable she is. And she was like, it was like the greatest place in the world. And then I think we took her to Bubbling Springs over here, which is literally some sand and a small pond. And she like, once again, was like, whoa, what is this? She was filled with wonder. 
The problem is the feeling of wonder for adults, it wears off. The older that you get, the harder and harder it is to be filled with wonder. I mean, you take a four-year-old to the zoo and they're like, whoa. You take a 14-year-old to the zoo, they're like, why are we here? <laughs> right? Sorry, not to stereotype, but, or I should say, why are we here? As we get older, it's the harder and harder to have our heart filled with wonder. We get used to things. And that's bad because when you run out of wonder in your life, and then you really got to think about this because we don't think about this often, you run out of meaning. You run out of joy. You run out of passion. But yet even when we get to that place, we, we still, there's these, still this, these evidences that pop out that we're still looking for wonder, that we still need it. I mean, look at just... All the popular movies, as one example. 19 of the top 25 highest growing, grossing movies are all based on the idea of wonder. Eight of the top 10 highest grossing movie franchises all based on the idea of wonder, of some greater unexplainable thing influencing people's lives. Franchises that are so big, uh, you know, like Harry Potter or Marvel or The Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Avatar. They sell out. We sit there in awe as we watch them, dreaming about what might be. Why do you think you watch kids run around and they want to be, you know, these different characters? They want to experience these powers that are unexplainable. But there's this desire for wonder in us. That even as adults, as Tim Keller would say, despite all our intellect and all our reasoning, our hearts know that this world is not all that there is. And that there are mysterious, incredible, unexplainable powers that are out there that can come into our impossible situations. Why do you think people are looking to the stars to get their horoscope? Or any of those things they go into because there's something in our hearts that wants something bigger to be in awe of. But they are all cheap, cheap substitutes for the wonder that God brings. Look at this. In verse 21, in chapter 21, verse 6, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, what does that mean, made laughter for me? It's not like she's never laughed before. What she's saying is, I have a laughter now that I never had before. It's not a, a, a bitter, cynical, skeptical laughter. It's a laughter that's filled with just wonder and awe. Why? Because God has done something beautiful and, and unexpected and inexplicable. You see, without wonder, there's the cynical and, and, and skeptical and bitter laughing and joking that tries to get rid of despondency. Or there's the, the nervous laughing that tries to, to hide the anxiety. But with wonder, it's a laughter that says, God has overcome my impossible situation with his power. And she's amazed at it. She's in awe of it. It's so improbable, she just has to laugh. We all want that kind of joy. Whether we realize it or not, we want to feel that kind of joy. The question is, how do we get that joy? 
How do we experience it like Sarah does? Do you not want to experience more joy in your life? I mean, if, if God were to come to say to you, I have more joy for you, which one of us would turn it down? The problem is we read stories like this and we get the wrong answer. We look for the wrong thing. I've, I've literally heard people read a story like this and they'll say, that is great. I see exactly what God can do. There's Sarah. She is 90 years old and she wanted a child and she got it. And therefore, if I really trust God, who says nothing is impossible, then I, then, then I shouldn't have such low goals or such low sights. I should expect amazing things for my life. If you have a desire for an incredible accomplishment in your life, if you have an, an agenda that's almost too great to imagine, with God, just you can do it. It's going to happen. No, no. That is not how you apply this text. And I'll tell you why. The greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, whose prayer life was considerably better than yours, that will ever be, whose faith was unbelievably greater than yours will ever be, he had a hard life, if you read it. Did amazing things, but had a hard life. He had to grow up in a foreign land because his life was threatened. He was constantly harassed by religious leaders. He did not have riches or power, even a home. He was abandoned by his friends. He was betrayed by one of his followers. He was beaten. He was murdered. He actually prayed to God that if possible, he be saved from it, and his prayers went unanswered. So it is a mistake for us as Christians to think that we will somehow fare better than Christ did. That is not where this joy, this wonder can be found. Let me show you where it can be found. It can be found centuries later in a similar conversation between the Lord and a woman. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he records an angel who shows up to a woman and he says to this woman, you are going to have a son. And this woman, whose name is Mary, says, how can this be? And she's skeptical. She has a right to be. Because if you think it was impossible for a 90-year-old woman to get pregnant with an old 100-year-old husband, how much more impossible was it for a woman to get pregnant with no husband at all? How does the angel reply? Nothing is impossible without God in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Now, why do these two stories have such similarities? I want you to hear this. I'm going to say it slowly because I don't want it to go by. They are so similar because Jesus, as Tim Keller would say, is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the ultimate son of promise. He is the ultimate one in whom we find the wonder of God's grace triumphing, overcoming the impossibility of our situation. Because our situation was far worse than Sarah's. We deal with something much worse than infertility. Sin and death and internal separation from God. Let me tell you what's impossible. 
that you and I, in spite of the way that we live, as people who acted in such a way that it would be considered treason against God, living in ways where God, where we would live ways where God did not exist, ignoring that he was there, ignoring his authority, that we would be adopted into the family of God through faith. That you and I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That you and I should live forever, welcomed into God's home. And yet that is exactly what happened through Jesus. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way, he said, the heroic death and resurrection of Christ have, in a sense, punched a hole in that huge barrier between the glory of God and our impossible situation. That's where the wonder is. That's where the joy is. That's where God changes how we laugh. Let me show you what I mean. Look at what Sarah says about herself in verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the wonder of his salvation enters you and you become like Sarah. You don't talk about religion. Like some people you talked about religion, like you believe in God, yeah. And I go to church. Yeah, I give some money. There's a matter of fact kind of way. We've all talked to people like this. You may answer this way yourself. But when God has captured your heart and the wonder of what he does fills your heart, you can't but help talk about salvation in a different way. There's no matter of fact about it. In fact, it almost becomes comical to you, laughable. It makes you chuckle to think that God could save a wretch like you. I laugh all the time that I am a pastor. I'm like, man. Most of you don't know me well enough to know why I laugh, but I am, if you knew me, if you knew my entire life, you would laugh. You might also leave the church, but that's another story. I just chalk on my God, I can't believe you would have me do this. And I talk to other leaders in this church and they're like, man, who am I? They just have to sit back and chuckle that God would save a wretches like us. This is the kind of wonder that Jesus brings into your life. And notice I said Jesus brings. I want to emphasize that because you can only experience this kind of laughter, this kind of wonder, this kind of joy if you realize God is the one who did it. Far too many of us have grown up believing that we're saved through our good works, that if we do enough good things, and so you're trying your hardest to live up to these good works, but here's the problem is, when you do that, and that is your goal, the memories of all of your failures are a never-ending source of pain for you, a never-ending source of guilt and condemnation. You can never get ahead of them. They always are right with you. And the only way for you to even get a, a modicum of comfort is just to repress them, to try to forget about them. But the gospel 
is that you've been accepted despite your failures, that God loved you despite your failures. And when you realize this, and it captures your heart, and your salvation is based on who he is and not who you are, then your failures, though you do regret them and wish you lived differently, they actually, they don't hurt you, they increase your gratitude. Man, look how far I have come because of God. Man, I was a moron. I can't believe, I deserved so much worse than what I got, and yet God has saved me. What an amazing story. That's how you know you're getting the wonder of God's salvation, when you are in awe of what he's done. Just like Sarah said, God has made me to laugh because of the work he has done. If you're a Christian, you don't need to go to the movies to be filled with wonder. You just look at what God's done in your life. You're like, wow, that's awesome. You know, and then what it leads you to, man, if he could do this with where I was, and I see all the sin and the brokenness in me now, I can only imagine what he can do next with me. And it causes you to wonder. Now maybe you sit here today and some of you are here like, yeah, I was a wretch, but now I'm saved. This is amazing grace. Now maybe some of you, you sit here and you don't have this joy. You struggle to make this connection. I, I want to show you something. As I said earlier, God has come to Abraham on three occasions in 20-something years. But on this fourth visit, he's not coming for Abraham. Like I said, he's coming for Sarah. Now, why would he come for Sarah? And this is a good question. Because if you think about it, there is literally no new information that Sarah is getting. She knows all about God. She knows all about the promises. She knows all about the time frame. She knows all of this. She's not saying, she, God is not saying anything to her, one thing to her that's brand new that she does not already know through her husband Abraham. So why is he going through the trouble of appearing? Well, this is why I think. It is not enough to know God through somebody else. I mean, think about it. Everything that she knows about God that we can read in Genesis, it's been through Abraham. And that's not good enough to have a real connection with God. You have, to, you have to have your own encounter. You have to have your own conversation. You have to have your own experience. You can't do it through somebody else. There's this English minister, his name was uh, John Stott. And he, he once talked about how he came to Christ. And he said, I was someone who grew up in the church. I read my Bible every day, went to church every Sunday. I prayed every day. And he said, it wasn't until I was 17 years old that I was listening to a minister preach. And, and he struck me so I went up to talk to him. And, and the minister gave me a verse. He gave me Revelation 3.20, which you know is part of the letters in Revelation to the church of Laodicea. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If he only hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And Stott said this verse was exactly what I needed to hear. For I had believed in Jesus my entire life. I'd been around Jesus my entire life. But I realized that day that Jesus was on the outside. 
He was on the wrong side of the door. I said my prayers every day, but it was like I said them through a keyhole that he could hear on the other side, hoping that he heard it. But that night, February 13th, 1938, he says, when others were in bed and the lights were out, I crept out of my bed. I knelt, and as simply as I knew how, I opened the door. Like Sarah, Stott knew about God, knew about his promises, but he realized that he had never had a personal encounter with God. God was somebody who was distant to him, somebody who was over there. He never had made God central to his life. He never invited him in to his life like Abraham invited these three men into his tent. And so Stott opened the door. It's not enough for you to know God through somebody else. Like you may have somebody in your life, they, they brought you here, they want you to read your Bible, they want you to come to church, and they're way more passionate than you. And if someone says, hey, do you believe in God? You're like, yeah, I believe in God. I, I go to church. You know, I'm not, as, I'm not as passionate as so-and-so. I'm not into it as so-and-so. But yeah, I believe. Is it possible that this other person, maybe your friend, maybe your spouse, has actually met God and you haven't? that you, they have had a personal encounter with God and you haven't. Or maybe you're like the church in Laodicea who Revelation 3.20 was written to and Jesus was once a close part of your life but now he's back out the outside and you're talking to him through a keyhole. For you to be changed, for you to be filled with wonder, for God to change how you laugh, you have to have a personal encounter with God. Nothing else is sufficient. You have to be able to say, God, I need you to come into my life. I need you to show me who you are. I want you to be central to everything in my life. You're not something I do on Sundays. You're not something I do when I stop and pray because I need something. You're not something I do when I just open up my Bible so I can check off my you know, Bible in a year program. I need you to be my Everything. I pray that's a prayer that you pray. If you are not filled with wonder, with joy, if your laugh is not a laugh at what God has done in your life. And I, and I would say one other thing. When you're praying a prayer like this, sometimes we expect, and you start seeking God like this, we expect God to move in certain ways. We watch how God has communicated with other people or moved in other people, and we're like, if we don't match that, then obviously we're not there. We're not in God's will. We're not in his plan. But if you look at how God came to Abraham and how God came to Sarah, he came very differently. Very differently in 12 and 15 and 17 and now in 18, very, very differently. God comes to people in different ways. He does not have a cookie-cutter approach. Sometimes he comes to someone, and there is a big moment, and their life just changes overnight. And then there are other times where he comes to someone, and the change is gradual. There are times where someone realizes the sin 
the depth of their depravity, and it brings them to their knees to come to the Lord, to submit to him by faith, and then, and eventually, and after that, they feel God's love and his mercy and his grace. And yet there are others who they get reaffirmed of God's love and mercy and grace, like I was, and then they become convicted of their sin and how they fallen short. Don't worry about other people's relationship with God. Don't worry about what you see them do because God comes to us all in different ways. He doesn't put you in a box, so don't do the same to him. My simple desire is that you start checking. The best way to do it is to say, check your chuckle. Start listening for the way that you laugh. Start listening for the way that others laugh. What are they revealing? What are your jokes about yourself revealing? And then go to God and say, Lord, I need, I need you to be central in my life, either for the first time or again. I need to have an encounter with you. I need to see the way and the wonder of how you work in my life so that I may be in awe of you. And then you keep praying and you keep asking and you keep watching and you keep waiting, and you keep inviting him like Abraham invited these three men. And whether it's...